This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode number 18 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I think I'm Andrew. This is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO television series, The Newsroom. This week, we're going to be talking about the fifth episode of season two of The Newsroom. The episode is titled News Night with Will McAvoy. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, and it was directed by the show's executive producer, Alan Pohl. This is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you are not caught up with The Newsroom and you don't want us to ruin it for you, stop listening now. This is a, a, a special episode. This is possibly a first for Navigating the Newsroom. We have two guests here on the show. Because this is an episode of the Newsroom focused on women's issues, we decided to copy the Republican Party and convene a panel of men to talk about it. So our first guest is the founder and editor and chief of MovieMezzanine.com. This is his first time appearing on Navigating the Newsroom. Sam Fragoso, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Our next guest appeared on Navigating the Newsroom last season. He did not like the show, but for some reason, he is still watching it. Corey Tad, welcome back. Hello. All right, before we really dive into things, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened on this episode? So this week in Breaking Bad, there was a Walt, there was a Jesse, there may have been a knocking, I don't know. Guys, Breaking Bad is back. We're not talking about Breaking Bad. We're talking about the newsroom. God damn it. All right, I'll talk about the newsroom. This week in the newsroom was a bunch of things going on. We have we have Will dealing with his father within the breaks as best he can. We have Sloane discovering that naked photos of her have reached the internet and finding the fallout and the emotional trauma that that brings. You have Maggie still going through her post Africa stages, including alcohol and pretty much being a horrible person. And then, of course, we get a couple more tidbits here and there of the Operation Genoa. And I'm probably forgetting something, but I'm blaming that all on the fact that I saw Breaking Bad. (laughs) That's a good excuse. Sam, since this is your first time on the show, let's just start out. What do you think of the newsroom as a whole? And also, what did you think of this episode in particular? Well, for one, I thought we were talking about the new girl. That's what I signed up for. So (laughs) I'm a bit perplexed. What do you think of Zoe Deschanel? I like her. She's pretty good. She's pretty good. Back on topic before we get off it again. I've liked the show pretty much the entire time, uh, which I know is not a popular opinion, especially with uh, Mr. Corey Atad over here, and just about everyone else on the internet. I think, obviously, it has the issue of the whole 2020 hindsight thing and how it's a bit critical of things. But overall, uh, you know, I like Aaron Sorkin's banter. It's not as good as Sports Night for me, personally speaking. But yeah, I think second season actually is is not as uh I don't know how to how to phrase it, I, I suppose, but the first season kind of gets stuck in a rut about, you know, preaching its politics and I think season 2 so far has stayed pretty much clear of that. Um or at least not as bad. So I I've enjoyed it. And what did you think of this episode? I thought it was good. I I I think everything uh, Andrew mentioned worked pretty well. 
I, I think I'm kind of getting sick of the whole Maggie post-Africa thing. But I like the Olivia Munn character. I like how that storyline plays out. I think that's fun to watch. Uh, the whole the tortured soul of Will McAvoy gets a bit old, but you know I, I think it shows a, a decent, sincere side of him that we don't always get to see. So uh, overall, I thought the episode was good, and the whole Genoa storyline seems to be coming along in an interesting fashion, especially this episode. Well, Corey, I know after we had you on last season, you stopped watching the show. Yet, for some reason, you're watching it again this season, and following you on Twitter, I'm not sure why you're still watching it. It, it seems like you're in an abusive relationship with this show. So, first of all, why are you still hate-watching this? And second of all, what did you think of this episode? Okay, so yeah, I mean, I did stop, I think last season I stopped watching after episode four, and I, I haven't even caught up, so I don't know what else happens in season one. And then this season, I... I think it's because I heard a few people kind of say, oh, it's kind of gotten better. There's a few annoying things. So I was like, ah, maybe I'll check it out. And then there's the other problem of like the summer just has like, there's no good shows or there, there are a few, but like so few that it's like, okay, fine. I'll check this out. But I think what's happening this season that's kind of interesting is that I finally have a character I like care about or actually kind of two characters and that's uh, Olivia Munn's character, Sloan. And, uh, and the guy who now she's obviously kind of, there's sort of some romance cooking between her and uh, Dawn. And those two characters I'm finding like just really, really well done this season. So I have something to attach to at least, uh, which is kind of keeping me going. And then just a lot of the rest of it is pretty awful. That said, this episode is probably the best episode of the series that I've seen. I think there's a lot in this episode that's instructive of what Sorkin can do well and what the newsroom often hasn't, but, you know, in this case, sort of did. Andrew, what did you think of this episode? I thought this episode was, was kind of fantastic. I mean, I've always been a little bit lukewarm as to where I grade episodes as we're going through this show, because while people have called me out as being the negative voice on this podcast, I do enjoy the show, but... I'm not going to put it on the, le- the the platitudes that I put things like Luther or or even Breaking Bad that I'm joking about continually mentioning tonight. But something about this episode, and it's very weird, that for a show that everyone for the last year has been complaining about the way that it depicts women in the office, it actually spends an entire episode dealing with this very female topic actually comes out being very interesting in how it actually talks about these things. And I, that is 99% of the reason I love it. The other 1% is general, my God, I love Olivia Munn in this, in this show, mm-hmm. love. Because that last moment where she reaches rage, oh, so fun. <laughs> I agree with all you guys. Corey, you're right. This isn't just the best episode of the series you've seen. It's the best episode of the series I've seen. And I've seen all of them. I I thought it was a fantastic episode. Unlike last season, which was very heavy-handed, very preachy. You know, I don't mind it when Sorkin gets preachy. But this showed that sometimes he can be more subtle when he feels like it. Uh, This is an episode that is set in real time, so that adds a lot of uh, tension to it, um, and and you're always wondering, like, will they be able to get this graphic up in time? Will they be able to record this soundbite? Will they be able to download this file? And it shows you, it gives you a behind-the-scenes look at how stressful 
things can be. And also, pretty much every single subplot in this episode, every storyline revolves around this central theme of technology and how it affects people's relationships with each other. It doesn't hit you over the head with it. It's just there in every single scene. And it really did a lot to show me that, hey, Sorkin can juggle a lot of plates and do it well and not hit you over the head with everything he's trying to say. So, yes, overall, I loved this episode of the show. I really hope this is the type of writing we see from it uh, in the future from now on. But let's talk about some specifics. Sam, was there a particular storyline that really stood out to you? that you were drawn to? Uh, I mean, without without just going to Olivia Munn for the next 40 minutes, obviously her storyline was good. I, I thought, you know, the Charlie Skinner and whoever, I don't know what the character's name was that came in, but he seemed to be, I forgot where he was even from. I know he's from the government. I thought how that played out was interesting enough. I And seeing Sam Watterson kind of shocked or uh, moved by something, um, I enjoyed that. I thought that was a new a new element to the show that I, I appreciated, for sure. And and seeing seeing Jim, uh, though I, I'm I'm kind of weary when it comes to Jim and Maggie and that whole relationship. I'm glad that he's off the the uh, the tour the bus. I, I think hey, it, the show's better when he's in the office, and it's not like him doing reports about the Republican candidacy and all that stuff. I think that was kind of boring. But yeah, I, I enjoyed that that segment. The scene you, you mentioned with Charlie is a great scene because not only does it give us a little bit of more information about the Genoa storyline that's really anchoring this season, it's also one of the rare moments where we get to see Charlie be serious. Uh, Sam Watterson's great on the show, and the show likes to use him as comic relief. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, it's just kind of the the goofy, alcoholic old guy who runs things. And uh, this show, th- this episode actually gives him a moment where he starts to realize, oh, this generous thing could be real and it could be serious. Because up until now, he's been a little bit more skeptical. Uh, and, and he's been advising everyone to sort of be careful and make sure that they don't misreport anything. And this is the episode where he's finally won over, and it was really good to see that. Corey, what did you think of that scene? Um, I thought the scene was pretty great, although I'm having a bit of trouble with that plot line. And part of it, I guess, is, you know, because it's based on the Operation Tailwind, you know, it was a real-life story in a real-life right. situation at CNN. And in the real-life case, which is, you know, pretty insane already i guess the deck wasn't so stacked it was basically you had a bunch of reporters who found out this information and kind of through tunnel vision created this story that they themselves probably thought was true but sort of they led the direction of it whereas i'm feeling like here it's running into that issue of like the the deck is just so stacked like this story has to be true all these people are coming forward and there's all this talk about it from all these random places and like this guy shows up to basically non-verbally confirm things. It's like, unless he's purposely trying to get them to falsely report, like that could be an interesting story. If they, if they're being screwed over on purpose, that might be interesting. But at the moment I'm sort of like, it's like, they're going to have to come up with something really like a really good reason for them to have missed the fact that this is a false story. Mm -hmm. So, so like uh, the scene itself was, was really well done. It's just, I'm kind of 
trepidations about the whole plot line over the season. That's actually kind of what I love about it. And the first episode this season, uh, which was also directed by Alan Pohl, actually, when they brought up the whole Genoa stuff and they immediately let you know that it doesn't turn out very well, I kind of felt like, well, thanks, you just ruined it. But now that they're showing in every episode the different pieces of information they're finding and gradually each member of the newsroom is being won over and, and starting to believe that this happened. Mm-hmm. It's it's doing a good job of convincing me that, yeah, this could be something that happened. There could be reporters that are actually doing their jobs well that still make a mistake. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the fact that, as you mentioned, Corey, the deck feels so stacked just kind of raises the tension for me even more, where now I'm just kind of like, well, what's going to happen? What went wrong? In, in a sense, I would agree with you. I guess my nervousness comes from the fact that I don't trust the show. Like, if this was Breaking Bad, I would be like, okay, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. But in in this case, I'm like, I'm not sure I trust where it's going. But you never know. I mean, uh, uh, Sorkin has pulled off this kind of long-form story before, uh, particularly in The West Wing. You know, stories where you're like, uh, where is this going to go? And it ends up going somewhere interesting. So, like, I'm, I'm somewhat with it, but I'm nervous. Andrew, did you um, like that scene, or do you have any insights onto this whole Genoa stuff and how it's being handled? I did quite like this scene, and I mean, only only to add to what's not mentioned so far, what I like so much about how that scene played out was you could see not so much the point of interest into where Sam Watterson kind of turned from being just a funny conversation about, I don't even remember what it started about being that was just stupid as to what he thought the guy came in to antagonize him about, to when it turned to Genoa, and you could see that he, he stopped giving his own information and just started going, what? Like, every every pronoun that he would throw into a sentence, he'd be like, what was that you mentioned? And it it just became this understanding that Sam was was making him confirm the story for him within the room, and that's that kind of just drew you in to the moment because we be, like like you mentioned Andrew we've been going like so where does this story go wrong that we end up in that that um that deposition that we see in the first in the first uh, episode and then it brings a question is it going to become a point where not so much that the show is wrong but that the characters are right and we're going to start defending them within their own court case well, that would be really interesting. Yeah, that would be really interesting. And and you bring up a good point. That scene does a really good job of showing how Charlie is great at his job and, and at what he does. And he knows how to approach a story and how not to insert what he wants to be true uh, when he's questioning a potential source. Well, I mean, sort of along those lines, again, it's, it, it probably doesn't help that I already know the story that this is based on, like the true life story, because like you said, I mean, he's not a bad journalist. Like he's he's purposely not trying to just confirm his own uh, preconceptions. And yet, obvious, or I mean, maybe not obviously, like, but if it's in any way close to the original story or the real story, it's uh, it's going to turn out that they were sort of going along with their preconceptions. So I don't know. It's it's um, it's kind of an interesting game being played. Right. It makes me wonder. You know, what if they actually turn out to be right? We've been assuming ever since we saw that opening scene with the disposition that they report something incorrectly. But what if the whole controversy and the whole reason they're in this mess? Is because they were actually they're actually right 
about something and it and it causes a big mess for a lot of powerful people. That would be an interesting place to take the show uh, because it would move it out of reality, which I've been saying for a while could be nice. It, it would, but here's the problem. Because it's set in reality and because it's set in the past, there's only so much shakeup that it can do, right? Which is, you guys know this, it's the ultimate failing of the show. It, it really is. Because like if if there wasn't the fact that this was set in the in the actual world that we know this story could go anywhere but right now it's like it could go some places but it can't go to extreme places and i don't get why that wasn't that wasn't something they did in the beginning like i i, I don't know why they ever thought and i and i and this is someone that's coming from someone who enjoys the show as is but i actually will agree with Corey. i, I think they really should have just created a fictional world i don't know why they had to take events from I mean, like sports night. Even even sports night was not real sports. Like it was a, it was fit. from what I remember, it was pretty fake. It was all stuff they created, and the show benefited from it. I mean, I get that the Republican Tea Party is crazy. Like I don't know, I didn't need the newsroom to tell me that. Right. I don't, I don't know. And weirdly, this show also kind of because it's already established its relationship to reality, it hasn't. You know, there's a show like Boardwalk Empire, which you know includes real historical people. But the kind of world and tone that it's created, it's allowed itself to go off in wild directions and, you know, reappropriate events from real people's lives and that kind of thing. So that show, especially in its third season, like managed to be often really, really surprising. And yet this show, it's like as surprising as it gets, it there's always that feeling of being locked in. Though I think that this episode went a certain ways to alleviate that by being very self-contained, um, and the outside world issues weren't really that important to the plot of this one. Well, I do wonder when and if, I, not even with, if I know it will, the Will and Mackenzie relationship, I once that happens, I don't know how interesting the show will be, to be honest. Like, I, I, I kind of think that's the, at least in the beginning, that's what was interesting about it for me. But it's going to have to work out eventually. And then I don't know, once that tension's not there, once that romantic interest is not there, then it really is just going to be about, unless they can create sub-stories, which they've been doing rather well, but I don't know. I worry about that. Well, I've still got my fingers crossed that the final moment of this season finale will be Romney winning the election and that it'll just decide to take things into a parallel reality where anything is possible the inglorious bastards route yes yes that's that's what i'm hoping for but it's we probably won't get that unfortunately moving on obviously everyone wants to talk about the sloan stuff he consults for aig and we've been seeing each other about six weeks and he got a suite at the mandarin oriental for christmas eve i bought him a camera All a right. nice a camera and we've been drinking and he wanted me to pose and you know i did for fun just for us. Last night I broke up with him. Have you heard of this website, Revenge Porn? I have now. Why can't you file for injunctive relief and get the pictures now? The pictures are everywhere. They have their own Facebook page. And she sues for defamation. She posed for the pictures. Copyright. It was his camera. She gave it to him. He owns the pictures. And it doesn't look to me like she was doing anything against her will. There wasn't. Are you on TV tonight? Yeah, in about two hours. You're trending number one, Sloan. What do you want to do? Let's dive into this and try to be as unsexist about it as we can. 
Andrew, I know Sloane is your favorite character. What did you think of this subplot involving her and these nude photos? All right, so um, as usual, I'm going to try and make this a bit more personal than we ever thought this conversation was going to go. Um, I know that the internet, like many people like to say, the internet was created for porn. I mean, if you're if you're a fan of a show that I love, like um, Coupling, you might know the wonderful speech about how all technological advancements were all created also that us men could get a better look at naked women's asses or breasts, dependent on your preference. And there's always this thing in my mind that whenever you go off into that dark corner of the internet, that even though you're going into this into this hedonistic side of the discussion, these are all technically faceless women to, to the people who are watching. You're never looking at it and saying, that's your cousin, that's your sister, that's your mother, or whatever. Last year, I don't know if any of you guys heard about this, and of course, I don't know if this story happened to you guys or anyone you know, um, but last year, there was this big kerfuffle in Jamaica, wherein there was an individual, I can't remember his name right now, who went and created a website um, in which he posted up all sorts of Jamaican women's photos, and he had gotten them via hacking a lot of people's computers and some people had actually donated girlfriends that had broken up with them images and just thrown it up on the internet to which it caused a big sir a big issue between a lot of my friends because a lot of my female friends some of them were on there some of their friends were on there and it was a big thing they eventually caught the guy and he's now in jail today um, and the site was pulled down like three or four times before they finally got him. But there's this whole thing with putting images on the internet and about the images you have. Because images today have become so so easily copyable, so easily so, so much that we have digital cameras so that you take... 5,000 pictures a, a minute, if you can, you know? It's it's no longer the idea of the analog camera where you've taken a shot, you kind of have to go away, you have 30 shots in a, in, a, in a spool of film, and then you go off and you get it processed. And how do you end up getting that around to the world unless, unless you actually run your own porno mag? No, we have the internet today, so this can go all over the world. So, I mean, it's all about this one moment when... She's talking to Don about what's happened to her. And she's not just talking about the fact that, oh my goodness, my father is going to see this image and it's going to be horrible. It's not just that. It's about, this is what she's going to be from now on. It's, it's that moment where, where she, she's asked the question, when is this a suitable response to whatever happened? Like, when would this have been something that's okay for you to do? Like, we, talk, we like to watch movies where people key people's cars for all sorts of bullshit. But this just seems a little bit ridiculous to do. And it's something that strikes a chord with me because I really can't understand how bad a person you have to be or how bad so- something someone has to do to you to think that this is all right as a response. I mean, have I gone too far in my rant? I don't know. No, no, no. I don't think so. Corey, I know you really you really liked this subplot, and I've been saying since season one, Don's the best character on the show, and I'm glad that they're really developing this relationship with between he and, and Sloane pretty well. What was it about this episode in particular that you thought really raised it above the rest? 
I mean, it was, it really was ultimately this, this plot line. Cause the other ones were, even when they were fine, they weren't quite enough. And I think that part of the problem is to me, this show has like a lack of characters. It has basically, except for Charlie, who's kind of his own thing, it has two types of characters. So either you have like the mouthpiece uh, who is Will McAvoy, who, like, I find Will just a completely uninteresting character for the most part because I don't have any insight into him as a human being. I just, he's like a set of ideas. And then you have other characters like Maggie and, and the other guy, Jim. You have, like, these kind of characters who were built from the ground up to, like, fit this sort of romantic mold but without enough shading. And to me, what's great about with Sloan, it was almost instant. With Dawn, it's kind of developed more and more over time. What's great is that they're characters who are just side things, who he sort of developed as actual characters with, you know, actual personalities and actual reasons to be motivated by things instead of just the, you know, concoctions that needed to exist to get the plot going. I think, you know, Sorkin very definitely has a women problem. But what he doesn't ever have is a character problem uh, in terms of like when he's found a character that is actually developed, he tends to write them really well. And, you know, you saw this in, in the first season of uh, The West Wing where there was like the Moira Kelly uh, character who was not good. Uh, it was just not right. not a good character because she was created to fill a role. But you had all these other female characters that kind of developed over time. And once you got to know them, you know, there was no sexism around their portrayal because they were just characters and he understands them as characters. Uh, and I think that that's what's happening in, in this plot line. You know, it's so perfectly written because he sympathizes with her. He empathizes with her on a very deep character level. And of course, there's like, again, the true story uh, that inspired it, which is really kind of an interesting meta commentary because this sort of thing happened to Olivia Munn, although not in a not for revenge or anything, just a hacking uh, phone hacking thing. It's very clear that that Sorkin he understood the situation, he understood not just what he wanted to say, but how it would relate to this character. And I think that the brilliance of having Dawn in that was that he was that empathetic person to listen to her and to understand her and to be angry and depressed and and all that with her. That whole th that whole construction for the episode was was brilliant, and I've loved Sloane and Dawn for this whole season. And like this episode was sort of I don't know about a culmination, but it kind of brought everything home in a way that uh, I wasn't even expecting. Yeah, so the writing is great on that, and and just I gotta say, like Olivia Munn especially, I'm so surprised at how great she is. Well, you mentioned you mentioned that there's this whole meta aspect to it because her phone was actually hacked in real life. And she's not the only cast member that's had something like that happen. I mean, Alison Pill accidentally tweeted a picture of herself mm -hmm. uh, between seasons. So, th I mean, this is something that the, the cast and I guess you could say HBO to a certain extent has, has dealt with in real life. And you're right. Olivia Munn's performance is spectacular. And you, you, you do feel like maybe she is drawing on some of her own experience and her own personal emotions. Um, it's it's a really fantastic performance. Do you guys believe what Don what Don tells her? I mean, because the, the the issue is she keeps going for shitty men, and and she keeps making the argument that, that they don't reveal how bad they are until later on, or they he, they never show a sign. Um, which I think is interesting until we meet the guy 
And within two seconds, I know he's a douchebag. There's not even a doubt in my mind. He looks like a complete douchebag. And I don't know as someone who is that intelligent and that one who, I mean, she, she I can't imagine her not thinking that or not getting that vibe. Though, though, though she, I mean, she is kind of socially inept in some ways. I will, I mean, I don't know. I, I, that, that was a little strange to me. I guess there's a bit of mansplaining go- going on on Sorkin's end with that, but but at the same time, it feels again, it feels true to the character in in the sense that here's Dawn. He probably sees the guys that she's with and goes, "I know that guy's a douchebag," but you know what? He's also a guy himself, so he probably recognizes it. Whereas in in her case, I I do get the sense that like she just doesn't see that in these people, or at least, or or you know what I mean? It's do you think she doesn't have confidence in herself? I think she has confidence in herself in some respects and and a lack of confidence in others and also just sometimes a lack of uh reading people or maybe seeing what she wants to see. And again, like that uh, that's that's why I love this character because it's just she's complex that way, you know? It's Yeah, and what's great about it is that it does bring up that issue of, okay, what's going on here? Is it that Sloane's blind? Is it that Don is making assumptions? And it really just sort of gets at that idea of how men and women view each other and the different issues that, that, that determine why people make the decisions they do and how it's not always what, what might be obvious to one person might not be obvious to another person for a variety of reasons. What I love about this episode is that this the Sloan subplot is the one that we're first presented with that we start to see, okay, this is an episode about technology to a large extent. And I love how every other subplot is basically about how technology can allow you these, these very intimate moments with other people, and it, and it can allow those moments to be captured and shared with a large audience, but at the same time... It distances us from that audience. We should probably make note of at least the two technology-driven subplots, um, which we, have, we haven't done yet. So, well, well pretty, mu- pretty much everything, in one way or another, deals with technology. You've got Will trying to get on uh, to, c- to connect with his dad over the phone and leaving a voicemail message and, and what that can represent and whether that can really connect him with his father. You've got this, this subplot with the, um, the kid who wants to come out as gay on TV and how technology provides him with the ability to control how he comes out to, to a certain extent, but he can't control how it will be received by other people. You've got everything with the Zimmerman 911 call, where, yes, technology allows that call to be recorded and used as evidence, but at the same time, Maggie uh, mis-edits it, so that it, it, it gives off the wrong idea and, and you know, leads people to make certain assumptions. And by the way, that, that's, a, that's a great... When, when Jim catches her on that, and she starts panicking because she's been drinking, and then she goes into the room with Emily Mortimer and uh, Sam Watterson... And you don't hear what she says, but I mean, obviously, you know. And the reaction those two have, I don't know why that sticks into my memory, but it does. Sam Watterson being so upset after already hearing, you know, the whole Genoa thing kind of just compounds that. And then you have, uh, just to go on with you're saying, the, uh, the Neil, the story with him on Twitter and Will McAvoy brushing this, this woman off at lunch and this woman now tweeting about it saying he's kind of an ass. And then Will trying to respond and compose a tweet, which I think is humorous and, and pretty much true to what... I mean, it's funny how serious we take things on Twitter 
And it's it's yeah. it's even more amusing how serious Will takes these accusations, even though he really probably did just make an innocent mistake. Well, that, that is what's kind of funny about it, because if there's anyone who should not be using Twitter, it's Will McAvoy, <laughs> because he just does not understand technology, I feel like, and, and social networking and, and, and how it all works. That was probably the storyline that irritated me the most. It, it just it didn't do much for well, it didn't, me. It didn't do anything at all. It was it was not good. That's not true because it was it was basically the the outlet for these other emotions. Um, in, That's in true. Will's storyline. He he needed that kind of petty distraction. Um, and yeah, there's I guess the thematic element too. But like ultimately, the function that that serves is you know Will is kind of in hell and he's sort of he's like using his brain power to distract himself with something really silly. Um, I thought that. That worked all right. I don't know. The the Will plot with his dad dying was well done. But again, I, I just haven't had much of a connection to Will's character. So I didn't, like, it was performed well. It was written well. It just didn't hit me, I think, the way that it should have, the way that, you know, the Olivia Munn stuff did. I can tell you the Maggie stuff is, just, the Maggie stuff is terrible. The Maggie stuff, like, I'm willing to defend in this episode because I don't know if it's a if it's that the fact that this episode is about Maggie failing and about her descent, because there were just so many parts which kind of rang right in this episode. I mean, this is an episode which follows so much about women and women's perception in the world. I mean, she has that little rant about um, Jim's new girlfriend. I like to call her Maggie 2.0. She's been reading her articles online, but she had to skim through around three Google searches of breast sizes and how best to get your breasts wonderful or whatever it is. Um, and then you even have there's, – there's this moment I really like where Jim stops by Gary Cooper and asks him, how, how long did it take you to get over Africa? Because you can see that Jim, he's ready that he wants to start giving Maggie shit. He wants to start – judging Maggie the way that he should, but he's been letting her slide because he can see that Africa has been weighing on her. And you know that what she's done in this episode deserves someone to give her shit, but you're not sure whether that's actually going to happen or not, at least not in the full force that you you would expect it to happen if this had happened three weeks ago pre-Africa or whatever. And while that has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman, it it kind of was a good moment for Maggie as a character that you're seeing the strain on the professional finally come. That it's not just, oh, she's a little drunk. Maybe we, we should let that go. Maybe it'll go away in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we're starting to see how she she really is in a bad place. Not only is she drinking a lot, she she makes the mistake with the Zimmerman tape. And it also just doesn't seem like she's doing a lot for most of the episode. She's just waiting for a file to download and doing an IQ test in in the meantime. So it, it really does seem to be impacting her professionally. Sam, I, I like what you said about the scene where she finally breaks down and has to go tell Charlie uh, what happened, because that, that is a, a big deal, and that is a major sign that she's not the same since she came back. And Andrew, you mentioned all the stuff with, with the internet and, and how she and Jim talk about the, the Sandra Fluke story that was really interesting to me because he he goes to the huffington post to show how if you want to read this article about sexism you have to scroll past links to all these articles about side boob and and 
whatnot. And I was wondering if that was a little jab by Sorkin at um, Maureen Ryan, who mm-hmm. is the television critic for the Huffington Post. And she's written a lot extensively yeah. uh, about the newsrooms problems with women Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering if that was a little jab back from sorkin like you mean when people were busy looking for sexism okay so that that kind of gets to why i didn't like a lot of that because it did feel to me like too much of a mouthpiece thing um and to me it was it was totally unfair because like you know mo ryan writes for huffington post because they give her the work (laughs) you know what i mean right and also she's a very good critic yeah, she's great, and and it's not it's not fair. You know, it's probably not fair to her that the Huff, that the Huffington Post is a terrible site, but but then direct that at the site, not at the person. And this was really kind of going like, you know, this person is not helping. Whereas to me, that's that's kind of nonsense because you know what? Like even on Huffington Post, quite frankly, they put all those link baity kind of sexist posts, but the ones that actually get the discussion and get you know the the cultural weight are the kinds of things that Mo Ryan is writing. To be honest, actually, a lot of the little problems that I've been having with this season are that it's clear that like Sorkin, you know, read all the criticism and was like, I hear what you're saying and you're not completely wrong, but here's why you're wrong in 10 points. That kind of stuff bothers me. Um, the other thing is just like the the whole Africa thing felt so just bad. It was bad. The lingering sensation of that is just like, oh, God, why do we keep having to talk about this? Just like the whole thing with Maggie reading the story to that kid. It was like, oh, no, God, please. It's so weird to compare this episode to last week's episode because last week was so heavy handed. And this episode just seems a lot more subtle with a lot of the stuff it's trying to do. Corey, I wasn't too bothered by by the stuff with the the Huffington Post, just because it seemed to me like Sorkin was touching on a more general point, just that idea that we can say all we want about sexism and we can rail against it and we can write columns about it, but at the end of the day, there are these larger forces out there, these these institutional corporate forces that really perpetuate this stuff. I guess, but she was using it, but she was using it to attack the other character and that felt right. that felt off i don't think she's i don't think she's attacking the other character i i think she's attacking the bigger issue i don't know no 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 she was she she was basically using it to dismiss this article that that this other girl had written then what is that driven by then what is, that's just driven by a romantic that's driven by lust which is again why i find the whole thing it's just off it's just off like that whole that whole thing, the whole romance, like all of it, even even the Meryl Streep's daughter's character, whatever her name was, like even that Hallie. whole thing felt just off. Is that Meryl Streep's daughter? Yeah. Yes. It's one of Meryl Streep's daughters. That kind of makes sense now that you say, now that, now I'm picturing her writing, like, as I've seen her in the previous episodes, and I'm like, that makes sense. No. Who's Meryl Streep's daughter? The, the girl from the bus. Oh, the reporter? Yeah. Oh. I didn't know that. Okay, that's interesting. Even even still, the Mag- the Maggie character could be axed, and I'd be okay with it. Yeah, Maggie is by far the worst character on the show. But on the whole, I liked how they they handled her in this episode. You're, you're right, Corey. Maybe maybe it did get a bit too personal. Mm-hmm. But I think Sam does bring up a good point that that could arguably just be 
because Maggie is a little bit jealous yeah. of Hallie. Though by that same token, ugh, I don't want to even get into it, but that could totally be... Then that by my my reasoning could be chalked up to it, like more sexism by right. Sorkin, that females are only driven by lust, and that takes them over, and they can't do work, and maybe my argument my argument is just crumbling. Yeah, Sam, just don't go down that rabbit hole. Here's what I will say, that, that I think, again, all the more reason for the show to somehow ditch the reality aspect, because usually it weighs down on the show, but in this case, the Zimmerman thing, they pulled kind of the law and order thing where they reappropriated something that happened to, I think it was NBC. Was it NBC who played the ta- the uh, the recording edited? I don't think it was just one network. I think it was a couple networks. I, I remember, I'm pretty sure I remember NBC was a big one because they did it like on their nightly news program, which is like supposed to be the big one. There may have been a couple other ones, but I like that they kind of use this thing that other networks did and found a way to give it sort of a personal motivation and... It wasn't making a point about journalism. It wasn't like you know. It wasn't like last season where they used the uh, the shooting of the the, the senator uh, to say like all these other news organizations were bad and we did it right. It was more saying okay, let's take this thing that happened, we'll build it into the characters, and it'll be good. And I thought that if the show is going to continue using the reality, that's how it should use it. So so point points there. Yeah, if this had happened last season, and the show would have spent the whole episode going, hey, look, these other networks misreported it we're gonna play the whole unedited tape because right. we're good journalists exactly yeah yeah i, I agree with you I'm, I'm glad that they didn't do that give credit where credit's due that was something that was actually again in a plot that i wasn't enjoying but it was in theory it was something that was done very well yeah w- one thing i i did like about the whole maggie situation um th- that was really interesting to me was how she brings up the word slut and how the focus should be on the word slut and why that is such a derogatory term and how that that word just needs to be unpacked because it's 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 just implying very sex negative things about women and i like how that it's sort of tied back to the opening scene with sloan where reese lansing he's questioning her and he's talking to to charlie and the way he's phrasing his questions it's it's not directly but it's sort it's indirectly blaming sloan to a certain extent like how could you do this you were how could you have a sex life and and do this almost and i i like how it acknowledges that that that's something that happens a lot we tend to blame women for being sexually active and i i, I like how Sloan is just kind of like, yeah, I did it. Why not? I wanted to do it. That's fine. And I, I, I like how the show t- took the emphasis off of Sloan and her sex life and placed it onto this guy and what he did. Well, I mean, it's this, it's this weird thing where it kind of is out there. That's kind of like, sadly, how the world does it, which is that they're they're constantly trying to put the blame on women. And I mean... I always have this weird understanding of it all in that I get very defensive when I hear women start to start to go on about how um why would it really need to be a topic if feminist is really still a word because I kind of bring my own personal uh perspective to it where I'm like I get it people shouldn't talk like that but they do and it's weird 
But I think the funnier part about it when you're talking about that opening scene with Sloane and, and, and Messina and Watterson is how Watterson is defending Sloane, is saying, look, it doesn't matter how it happened. We don't need to know the story when Messina is pushing the fact that he wants to know the story. Is that in some way Sorkin kind of trying to continue to make the, the, the higher-ups, the bad guys of the show, quote-unquote? Reese has been an ass the whole time. And he, he, I find him to be not a real person at all. Like, I, I yeah. he's just constantly malevolent. I think Sorkin is hurting the show by making him so one-dimensional. Reese is the kind of guy that if he could get away with it, would post pictures to revengeporn.com. Yep, probably. I like how a lot of the subplots in this episode just kind of touch on that idea of sex in general and how there's this cultural... How, how a lot of people in the country still are stuck on this idea of very traditional views of sex between men and women. And, you know, women, it's not good for them to, to have a healthy sex life. If you're gay, you shouldn't be, you know, having sex. And I like how all of that gets brought up in this episode. And Sorkin draws attention to those institutional ideas in a way that doesn't feel preachy or condescending yeah i was just really impressed it just felt a lot different from how he's handled issues in the past what do you think of the dev patel character uh, the neil I, I like him as a character he's a fun character i i agree with Corey though when he says that most of the characters on this show aren't really full, fully fleshed out characters most of them are two-dimensional at best I think so far, Neil is definitely a pretty two-dimensional character. Well, Neil's funny because he has the personality, so it's like, in in theory, there's a character there, but he just, he hasn't gotten any plots that are properly motivated, that don't feel like, you know, so so you had uh, his motivation surrounding the uh, Occupy Wall Street stuff, in theory might have been interesting, but it was it was clearly just Sorkin trying to make a point about Occupy Wall Street through this character. You know, whereas, for example, the Mackenzie stuff with uh, with the gay kid was not the greatest subplot. Like, it, I didn't, I the show didn't need it. It was like one extra thing that the show didn't need exactly. But to the extent that it was done, it was handled fairly well. And I like that in there was empathy for both characters because at first you do feel like it is just Sorkin standing on a pedestal, but by the end it feels like okay, Mackenzie is going through this thing. She's trying to keep things under control. She has her reasons for doing things and she sees through this character because she's good at seeing through people. And then on his end, instead of just totally dressing him down and making the kid seem like an awful human being, like it could have done uh, the last bit with him is kind of saying like, I wanted to do this so I wouldn't have to tell my parents or so, so my parents could find out without me having to actually face them. And I thought that that was just like, it's like, okay, so he has empathy for both people in this scene. Again, that's that's when Sorkin brings the goods. So I, I don't know, like, hopefully the show continues to go in that direction. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I really liked that subplot just because it was so well written. And Sorkin's the kind of writer that he, I feel like he probably could take any side of an issue and construct a really good argument for it. And that entire conversation, I was like, all right, I'm on McKinsey's side. No, wait, now I'm on this kid's side. No, wait, now I'm back on McKinsey's side. Just because 
it was so well written and and that was definitely Sorkin at his A game I think it wasn't just one side criticizing another side yeah like I said the only problem I had with that scene was just that it felt like one subplot too many like there were so many things to pay attention to in the episode and that one it almost seemed to come out of nowhere I was like wait why are we spending time with this like and then it got bumped yeah true What did your dad say? It wasn't my dad. It was a guy who called the ambulance. He was using my dad's phone. What happened? I don't know. It sounds like he collapsed. Yes, please. And Lincoln, the number for the St. Elizabeth Regional Medical Center. And if you could connect me, Jesus. that would be... Yeah, one of the hands took his phone and called me. I was the emergency contact, 1,500 miles away. Good evening. I'm looking for John McAvoy. He was brought into ER about... He should have just been brought in. Thank you. What do you think happened? At 7 o'clock central time, I think he was helping to bring in the cows, which you're not supposed to do when you're 150 years. Yes, I'm calling about John McAvoy. He was brought in a few minutes ago. This is his son, Will. What do you need? I just need to ask him about something someone posted on Twitter. Can it wait? Yeah. Neil, hang on. You think if I call back after 9, I'm sorry, 8 o'clock your time. If I call back after 8, I might be able to speak to him. I appreciate it. Thanks. It's all right. They think he may have had a mild heart attack. He was responding to a clot dissolving agent, and they got him in cardio, running some tests. A little more cardio. It's fine. I think sometimes with the Will character, it's too stacked to look at Will as like this perfect epitome of a good newsman, a moral, ethical newsman. Uh, unlike that Emily Mortimer conversation where, you're right, Andrew, like I was on the kid's side and then her side, and that that's the type of writing this show needs more of, for sure, where I'm questioning my own beliefs and my own ideals. Uh, and I think too often with Will, it's just kind of like confirmation bias. That's what happens with me a lot. It's like he says things, I'm like, oh, you mean you're saying things that I, have, I know because I'm a living human being and I've watched Fox News before and I've watched MSNBC? I, I think that's the issue with Will for me. Yeah, I, I, I'm really hoping that this whole thing with the death of his father will be a major character point for him and that they will use that to really develop him more. Um, it, I, I, I agree with, I think it was you, Corey, I'm not sure. Someone said that that didn't really connect emotionally with them during the episode. It didn't connect with me either, but the more I think about it, the more I appreciate how it was handled in the context of all this other stuff that was going on. Yeah, it's kind of weird to suddenly have this major character moment with Will when we don't really know a whole lot about him, and and he is fairly two-dimensional up until this point. But I like the way they presented it. I, I like how they acknowledge that with, with all the stuff about technology and, and putting yourself out there, Will's on TV every night, so he has this relationship with complete strangers that's just governed by this technological medium. And I love how it ends with him just taking that moment of silence and the, the, the audience, these total strangers, have to live with him in this emotional, vulnerable moment. That, that's his Sloan moment almost. She was physically naked in her pictures and now he's sort of emotionally naked on the air but but like that but the, by that same token that happened last episode or not this one but the one before that with like him going to the professor who's like um a part of the occupy wall street thing and like he randomly throws in at the end he's having like confidence issues right and i was like oh wow that's interesting but you're just telling me that you're not showing me anything and that's 
that's what I keep finding with the Will characters. Like he, he says a lot of things, and Sorkin writes a lot of good dialogue for him, but it's never they don't dive into it. He's having confidence issues. Where does he have confidence issues almost ever on the show that I've seen? Especially in like last episode, there was no you know confidence issues. He was a bit upset about his father, that's about it, and upset about a girl he may or may not have blown off at lunch. Like there was I don't know why they didn't go into that. If you're gonna introduce it I don't know. That's my will grief. Is that he he's ideally uh, the protagonist of the show, at least that's what I think. And the fact that they still haven't fleshed him out into more than two dimensions is baffling. I thought that they, they showed more than they told with this episode, at least more so than usual. Am I alone in thinking no, that? No, 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 I, I completely agree. And, and I think, I mean, they told to the extent that it's like, okay, so we're going to throw in this extra contrivance of his father dying to build emotional or whatever. But like, so it didn't, connect fully because we don't have the basis with the character i guess but i agree that it, it did the showing rather than the telling for the most but part. see that's but that again the like you don't have a basis for the character you're in the second season well okay i mean how, like, look, he, it, I, he, he's it, the main character i mean how, how do you not have the base because it's a terrible show it's been a terrible show <laughs> <laughs> it's not a terrible show it's just it's it's interesting how the side characters have become more interesting than will I mean, yeah, I guess. Uh, look, uh, it's sort of the opposite of the West Wing problem, where the you know the West Wing, uh, you were never even supposed to see the president originally, and then they brought in Martin Sheen. Just they were going to have like one scene with him at the end of the pilot, and then maybe have him in some other episodes. But like he became a full-on character because they found things to bring him motivation. And I think the last thing that I would care to say about this episode. Uh, and sort of how it relates to the rest of the show um, is that the self-contained nature of it, even though it was like a lot of different stories, because it was like each character dealing with uh, a pretty emotional issue, it reminded me of some of the better episodes of the West Wing. I'm waiting for this show to have its uh, West Wing Christmas episode, like an Excelsis Dio or or, uh, Noel, or even like the finale two cathedrals from season two, like just give me that real meat focus on one character and give me just an amazingly emotional story. And then maybe I'll, I'll find that connection that I've been lacking. But this episode went kind of a long way to establishing that. So has it converted you, Corey? It hasn't converted me in the sense that I still think like for the most part, the show has these crippling problems, but this episode shows that maybe Sorkin, has figured out a way to solve those problems. Of course, then like the next episode will air and it'll go back to normal, but we'll, we'll find out like at this point, let's put it this way. It hasn't converted me, but I'm more willing to see. And the more, and the more Sloan I get, the more Olivia Munn I get, the, the happier I am. Cause she like, it's crazy how charming she is. I had no idea she had that in her, especially after her stint on the daily show. Yeah. I, I, I love her. I love Dawn. I, I really liked how there's all this, uh, sexual tension between the two of them, and I love how Sorkin isn't just jumping right into that. I love how he, he seems to be taking his time and 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 letting that simmer there. So in her scenes with Dawn, I was half expecting them to just start making out, and and that would be their way of comforting each other. And I'm glad that it didn't go that way. Mm-hmm. And speaking speaking of Dawn, what was up with all that World Net Daily stuff? That was interesting. That was funny. It was okay. Again, that's what the newsroom does. It's like, we're going to throw 90 stories in 52 minutes, and you're <laughs> going to have to watch it. 
So here it is. Like, they can't really, as much as I like the show, like, they still can't really have that, the, the, the Sloan Don relationship work out without, like, Don having to go to the phone every two minutes and being like, hey, you ran this story, and now I'm gonna get in trouble for it, and then, well, I don't even know what it was called. It was like luxury indie. I don't forget what it was. It, it was kind of a funny little subplot, but I just spent the entire episode thinking, "Wait, was this a real thing? Should because I don't remember any of this happening. I don't know who who he's talking about or, or what's going on." What's the reporter's name? Munchie or Munch? <laughs> <laughs> Mister Munch, and he's clearly a British guy. That see, here's the thing: that subplot I thought was like really funny and cute. But, like, had the episode not had a billion other subplots, it would have been more effective as that comedic kind of release. Because, like, that that whole subplot is so grim that you sort of need that release with this character, like, just being annoyingly distracted by this stupid thing that happened. And I like that at the end of it, like, Sloane completely tries to take control of the situation and, and effectively almost does a better job than, than he is. But yeah, so I, I I get it, and I like that within the context of its of its plot. But it just it's like so many damn plots in this episode. And and we haven't talked yet about the fake phone call. Oh, that was funny. Oh my god, I like yeah, that. Yeah, fuck. Look, we've been talking about this for I don't know. I can't even see the runtime right now. But this is insanity. The fact that we're forgetting subplots within a single episode is ba- like that again is just indicative of just how much shit happens. In a newsroom episode. The fact that you haven't seen, like, four episodes, Corey, you've missed probably 90 plots. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it, like, you, you've missed, and, and to be honest, like, probably five of those are worth your time. I thought you liked this show, Sam. Yeah, I, I do, but, I mean, those five are quite good. Look, guys, look, guys, someone is going to go out there, and they're going to make a supercut of just Sloan scenes, and it will be the perfect <laughs> season of newsroom ever. I, I call for a Sloan spinoff, just all Sloan all the time. As long as there's no Don. I don't want Sloan near Don. No, we need more Don. Don's the best character on the show. I've been saying it for a long time now. Andrew, you you, you brought up the thing with the, uh, the prank callers. I really liked that just because, you know, once again, this this season, the show just really seems to be doing a good job of presenting the process of the news and what goes in to to researching a story both long form stories and little day-to-day obstacles that a newsroom has to overcome and i just thought that that was a really funny effective subplot to, to, just to show that hey this is something you know this is happening while they are managing a broadcast on the air this is something they have to deal with while they're dealing with all this other important stuff i thought it was really great Meanwhile, like you speaking of process reminds me just to say that, you know, you all should probably just give up on this show and watch broadcast news on loop instead, because broadcast news is amazing and has Holly Hunter. I love that movie so much. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, Corey's right. Broadcast news is better. It's literally everything this show wants to be. Go watch Network. It gets the political points in. It gets the comedy, the romance, the like emotional stuff, the process, everything. It's all it's all in there. My brother Douglas, he has the complete 
opposite opinion that the newsroom is everything that the that broadcast news should have been, and I hate him so much for it. <laughs> wait, wait, really? Is it, but but he's joking though. That's that's no, the thing, he's right? Not joking. <laughs> oh, oh, but he's joking though. That's that's the good thing is that he's joking. Oh, God. To be fair, broadcast news has a shitty ending. Unless you whoa, watch the director's, co- unless you uh, unless you watch the the ending on the Criterion disc, there's a different. There's a separate ending that the director shot, but he didn't put in the film. So it's on the it's on the Criterion disc for you to watch if you want to watch it. Yeah, it's wait, it's the best ending. You you should watch that now. I'm going to leave now. <laughs> I'll see you later. Do any of you have anything else to say about this episode of the newsroom, or should we just end this recording session and keep talking about how great broadcast news is? I like the last idea. Okay. Okay. I like that. Can we all synchronize pressing play on broadcast news? I can pick up my Criterion disc. (laughs) (laughs) I actually do own that. All right. I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes, so if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program, and you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, and our podcast all about the Showtime series Dexter, Avenging Angels. Oh, man, this has been a great episode. Thank you guys for coming on. Sam, where can people find more of you and your work? Uh, you can find everything I do. Well, not everything, but most things I do at my site, uh, moviemezzanine.com. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sam Fragoso, F-R-A-G-O-S-O, and I occasionally contribute to Fan the Fire magazine and the film stage. Corey, are you on the internet? I mean, I know you I know you are because I see you complaining about the newsroom every week. So mm-hmm. I am uh, on Twitter at Corey Ted. Andrew, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at gmanreviews.com. Why was I saying gmanreviews.com? That's the website, gmanreviews.com, and my Twitter handle is at gmanreviews. And I guess you can find anything through there, generally. I will mention it on Twitter if I do something. All right. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com, moviemezzanine.com, and now covering a few TV shows over at patheos.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. Andrew, sign us off. We should really be watching broadcast news now, guys. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!